today in much of Christendom, people are observing Trinity Sunday, which is the first Sunday following Pentecost. And the liturgical reading from the epistles on this day is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 12 through 17, which will also serve as the text for the sermon. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him, so that he may also be glorified with him. At Farmers, we've seen almost everything, so we know how to cover almost anything, even mermuts. We covered it, February 3rd, 2016. Talk to farmers. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Years old. And he recently had some professional tree trimmers come out to his house to look at the pecan tree that's in the backyard. And when they saw my mom and dad's pecan tree, they went, whoa, that's the largest pecan tree in Lee County. You know the old Jewish proverb, have a child, write a book, plant a tree. I was a small boy when I first met Kalichi. Dad bought a pecan tree seedling that was way taller than me, and he left it in the backyard one morning, and he told me and my little brother, who was five years younger than me, so you knew who was about to dig this hole, to dig, and when he got home that night, he would put the tree into the hole. And I started digging, and it was so easy. It was a piece of cake. I was just heading through. I had this perfect circumference of a hole, and then I met Caliche. For those of you who are not from southern New Mexico, you know that there's this two to three level of topsoil above the ground. And it's beautiful soil, it'll grow a lot if you can get some water out there. And then three feet to two feet underneath it is six rocks, of six feet of just pure gravel. It's like cement, you have to get out a, a pick to get through it. And so um, I hit that caliche and the digging got very slow. And when my dad got home, he knew what was going to happen. He told me to keep digging the next day. He'd check on me the next morning, the next afternoon. Being a lawyer, being a judge, is a lot like being Kalichi. You know something about everything, but you have only this sort of superficial knowledge, and there's this huge amount of ignorance below the soil. And my knowledge is like that southern New Mexico. It's this thin layer of knowledge 
uh, over this very thick rock of ignorance. It's kind of like the commercial. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. This spring, as I have been traveling around, I have been listening in my car to a book on CD called The First Family by Mike Dash, who's a historian and New York best-selling um, author. And what is contrary to what you might think, First Families doesn't have anything to do with one of the president's families. The subtitle of First Family is Terror, Extortion, Revenge, Murder, and the Birth of the American Mafia. The stories about the early years from 1890s to the 1920s of how the black hand invaded the United States. The crime members came from these small but violent Sicilian villages uh, with some of the very earliest Italians, uh, Americans after the Civil War. And it was during that great wave of migration that they came to the United States. So before you had the famous uh, notorious five families who dominated U.S. organized crime uh, for a bloody half century, um, which is the subject of so many of the movies that we're drawn to watch about the uh, mafia and Americans love to go see, there was this one-fingered, and I'm not sure which finger he had, genius, criminal genius named Giuseppe Morello. And Giuseppe Morello was known as the clutched hand, and he had this sort of lethal syndicate of, of, of associates that progressed from very small-time crime that you would see in an immigrant community to then counterfeiting rings to even bigger criminal enterprises. And Morello exerted ruthless control over the streets of Little Italy, Little Italy and spread to other parts of uh, Italian neighborhoods in New York. And through some very adroit coordination with Sicilian families, his clutch hand soon reached beyond the Hudson River and included uh, violence across the nation. One of the things that I have been fascinated with in studying the Mafia has been about how difficult it is to leave. Um, once you get involved, it's very difficult to leave. It's not possible to just say, never mind, I don't think I want to be involved this week. I think I would rather go into pecan planting or caliche mining or something like that. You're not able to just retire and get your pension from the 501k down at the, down at the uh, Mafia. Uh, in first family, Morello commits a, orders a hit on a man. And because this is family um, worship Sunday, I won't go into the gruesome details, but just uh, it's the famous New York barrel murder. And uh, after he gets through with the New York barrel murder, he then has everyone that was connected with it on his side murdered. You just don't leave very easily. But let's face it. Blood is an essential component of what we do every Sunday when we come here too. 
from Abel's first sacrifices to Abraham's aborted attempt to sacrifice Isaac, the first Passover, the law of Moses, where they talk about circumcision and they talk about never eating blood, and then the hundreds of years of sacrifices at that temple up to Jesus' day. The Christian faith is no different. Our symbol is a Roman execution cross, the death penalty of its day. It was a bloody affair. One of my favorite paintings is the Greek artist El Greco's, the disrobing of Christ, which hangs in the sacristy of the cathedral in Toledo, Spain. And the priest, as they are donning and doffing their robes to go in what they call a mass, they look at this derobing of Jesus, disrobing of Jesus. And notice that he uses Matthew and Luke. They talk about a purple robe, but in Matthew it was a scarlet robe, and it's very red, it's very oversized, it's very flowing. And it reminds the priest, and it reminds us, that when they take off that robe, it's going to be already a bloody body. And what is about to occur on the cross is even going to be more so. When my children were little and we used to drive around in the minivan stage of life, we used to play Bible trivia. The answer always had to be for our daughter Elizabeth, because she was so small, the answer to the question always had to be God, or she was going to get mad at us. But the boys were a little more sophisticated and older. And one day we began to to debate what was the most precious thing that would be in heaven. And we decided it would be the blood of Jesus. And we imagined it would still be pumping through the resurrected body and heart of Jesus. I don't know if that's true. But just thinking about the blood of Jesus on that level lets us think about all the possibilities and all the things that can come from contemplating the blood of Jesus. Jesus tells us to take up our own cross and to follow Him. Paul, in verse 17 of this, talks about Christians sharing in the suffering of Jesus so that someday we will share in the glory of Jesus. We are told that we must be baptized into the water, into the blood, and to be buried, and to be resurrected. Remember the old song, Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? And in a moment, we will gather around that table, use the bread and the cup to remember His body and blood and to proclaim His death. But however difficult it is to leave the mafia, it's not easy to leave the blood of Jesus. It's really remarkably easy. And it's interesting what Paul talks about in this passage causes most of us to leave. Leave that important blood. Leave the fellowship of the table. 
to leave our brothers and sisters. It's what Paul calls fear. It's what Jesus calls anxiousness, anxiety, worry. And Jesus talks about some of the specific things that cause us to leave and fear and walk off from this blood. Isn't it interesting that Jesus and Paul were worried about our worry life? That is, what is it that causes most of us to leave? He doesn't mention murder. Not many Christians and non-Christians, for that matter, murder people, and that causes them to be separated from Jesus. Lust of the flesh. Most people can commit adultery, and you know what? Still show up on Sunday morning. We've seen it time and time in this church and churches across the country. They find that they need something. I have had men who have confidently told me that they look at things on computers that men shouldn't look at. And yet those men have qualities in their life that I only wish I could have in my life. We find the same in the secular world as we do in the Christian world when it comes to marriage. Our marriages break up at exactly the same rate. And yet we have so many brothers and sisters who are divorced and attend and be part of us. The proof's in the pudding. Paul didn't have to tell people who were engaged in immorality to get out. He had to tell the church to kick them out. So it's not that that keeps us from being part of the blood. Some think it's because we get disillusioned with the church. That we just see too many hypocrites there and we're not going to be part of it. I don't think that's it either. And I don't think that's what Paul means when he talks about fear and Jesus talks about worry. There's no doubt there are people who leave the church for academic reasons. They grow up in the church, they go off to college, they study Hegel and Nietzsche, and they lose their faith. There are certainly people who for intellectual reasons leave Jesus and become those fairly rare true atheists. But I think there are more people who leave for other reasons and then rationalize with intellectual reasons why they left. The worry list that Paul talks about and uses then to rationalize, I think, is the real reason that people leave the church. The same about disillusion. Um, and it's hypocrites that are in the church. There's no doubt that church, um, including Montgomery, have deeply hurt and wounded and disappointed many people in the world. Sometimes church, instead of feeling like a hospital, feels like a contact sport. You better have pretty thick skin to go here and keep going and keep going. And we all have to live with the painful realization that we have been hypocrites, that we have witnessed hypocrisy in the church, and that it's never going to stop. The greatest burden I have to live with is to think of the times I have been stumbling blocks, that the church has been stumbling blocks for young, for old, for men, for women, for people of an entire generation, for ethnic groups, for racial groups, and we could go on and on 
the hurdles and burdens we put in front of people. It gets to the point where we're stumbling blocks for an entire nation. Mahatma Gandhi once said, I know of no one who has done more for humanity than Jesus. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. What would the world be like if Gandhi had become a Christian rather than a Hindu? The leader of India, the second most populous country in the world and growing rapidly, if he had become a Christian rather than a Hindu and had tried to keep the Muslims and the Hindus in one country rather than forcing the Muslims into Pakistan and Bangladesh and making the region that is so filled with extremism and hatred and both conventional and nuclear weapons so volatile and so unlike the example of nonviolence that Gandhi himself lived in his life. We should never let ourselves off the hook and understate how our public and our private lives can cause spouses and children and family members and co-workers and friends to never want to have anything to do with our religion. But having said that, I think the discouragements that come from the church and the dissolution, again, are not the reasons that most people don't come and stay at church. They have to answer their God themselves. I think it's what Paul says. It's fear or anxiety or anxiousness or worry as Jesus calls it. So what does Jesus tell us not to worry about? He says in Matthew, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Wow! It can't get broader than that. If you cannot worry about your life, who can and what can you worry about? There's not much left. Jesus goes on to get very specific in chapter 6 about what not to worry. He talks about eating. He talks about drinking. He talks about our body, our clothes, what to wear. Sometimes we have to pull that language forward to make it real. They break down into two broad categories. First, think about food and clothing, the things that we as 21st century people largely buy. Because we don't make our own clothes anymore for the most part. We don't grow our own food. We're not responsible for getting clean water to our family and our homes. But we do worry about money. When we are old, we worry that we're going to outlive our IRA, our savings, our pensions. We worry about spending too much so that we don't have, so, uh, we don't have to uh, have a spouse live on uh, what we've left them. We worry that us or our spouse are going to live our final years or months or days in one of those smelly intensive care facilities or homes. There's a whole industry of insurance companies and financial advisors that to a degree feed on those fears in their advertisements of their products and 
and services. Most of us have to be concerned about money. And it affects our behavior. We take jobs that we really don't want to take because it pays better. We even make careers and professions that we don't enjoy and spend our precious years not doing what we really want to do. We work too many hours and days and weeks and minutes and months and then years all while our children are growing up and work is left unattended. If you're the house parent and you give up your career to raise the children and support your spouse's career, you view your working spouse and his or her success and rise in the business world with both pride and uneasiness and concern that the the breadwinner may outgrow you and leave you a single parent. It's hard not to worry about money for ourselves in old age, for our children's education, and with grandparents raising more and more of this generation's children because of the problems that uh, the young mothers have from drugs and alcohol and, and being left behind, we worry whether we have enough for them. And then on top of that, many of us have to take care of our parents as they age. Many people are squeezed. There is not enough money for most of us. And that fear can affect the way we live. And the life that we choose can just crowd out Christ. The other category that God tells us not to worry about is our body. I pray about my health. When I was 17, I only prayed that I could get bigger and stronger and faster and hit people harder. I did not do that much. I didn't do it much when I was young. But now we all worry about medical care. We worry about medical insurance. We worry about getting dementia or Alzheimer's. We know people that get so incapacitated with fears of their medical problems that they quit going places and they quit seeing people and they quit doing things because of concern about their health. We also worry about shelter. Our house is usually our largest investment. And we worry about our house and losing it in old age when the reverse mortgage runs out. We spend a lot of time on upkeep. We repair. We do that lawn. We spend a lot to pay for a house and carry a house and it's so much part of our lives that we have seen people who just use a house and all that you got to do to a house to just squeeze out Jesus. And the reality is that we buy houses that don't just shelter us from the elements. We buy them because of the square footage or the view or the school district or the prestige of the neighborhood. One big fear that we have is we're going to lose that. And then there's just at a basic level as humans and almost animals, um, we're worried about our personal safety. Our concern affects where we buy the house, 
We will not go to certain places in Albuquerque because of the crime. We will not invite certain people into our home. We will not let them live with us when they are on the street or when they get out of prison. I think we get it. We get Paul's point. We get Jesus' point. It's not crime. It's not gross immorality. It's not disillusion with the church. It's not um, any of those things that are keeping us from living the radical Christian life that Jesus and Paul talked about. It's really the fear about money in our bodies. We worry about life. And there then, when we get done with all that, there's just nothing left for Christ. And rather than being hard to leave, leaving the table and the fellowship that we enjoy is very easy to leave. It's uh, so easy to us to just fear our way anxiety away, anxious away, worry away, away out that back door. Nobody stands at the back door of a church and keeps you from leaving or keeping you from even returning. Henry David Thoreau is attributed to have said, Most men live lives of quiet desperation and die with their song still inside. We all remember the character of Willie Loman and Arthur Miller's The Death of a Salesman. And for us old-timers here, we can remember Kevin standing right here and saying, is there more to life than being born, getting married, and having children, and working, and dying? So how do we avoid warring our way away from Christ? Jesus tells us four things on the Sermon on the Mount when He tells us not to worry. They surround that passage. Jesus tells us first not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth. If you do, He says you are guaranteed to be disappointed because either you're going to lose them in your life or you're going to lose them when they put you in the grave. And then Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Decide very carefully what your treasure is and where you're going to put it. Second, He tells us as we, when He talks about two masters, and He uses the same language that Paul uses of slavery. He gives us a binary choice just as Paul does. He tells us that you will love one and you will hate the other. I like to think that sometimes I can multitask. Jesus is extremely skeptical of us being able to multitask. He says flat out, you cannot, you cannot serve God and wealth. Third, in the paragraph about worrying, he says this, But strive first for the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, money, health, safety, whatever you want to put there that you worry about will be given to you as well. 
the genius of Jesus is He doesn't just tell you what not to do. He tells you what to do to replace the worries of life. Be single-minded all the time and all the way. Be a righteous man. Be a righteous woman. Be God's servant. You're going to be a slave of somebody? Be God's servant. And everything else will be taken care of. And fourth, he closes chapter 6. This little passage on anxiety and worship, uh, worrying. He closes it with some very practical advice. He says, so do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring concerns of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. I am not mature enough, and I don't think at this point I'm going to get mature enough not to worry. Not to worry at all. So I try to manage my worries and fears. And this verse with its two sentences has helped me a lot. I tell myself, I'm going to let you worry a little bit. But I pray three sentences each morning to try to cope with the worries. And if you don't pray about your worries, think again. Jesus talked about them on the Sermon on the Mount at length. Paul talks about them as the thing that's probably going to lose most Christians. So maybe we need to be incorporating worry into our prayer life. First, I ask God not today to let me worry about things I can't do anything about. Let that sink in for a moment. One of the things that you realize as you get older is there's just a lot of life you don't have control over. I don't have control over my DNA. I don't have control over my hair. I don't have control over a lot of things. It's a small world that we have control over. So let me leave a lot of room for God. The things I can't control, leave it for Him. Because He basically tells you, if you're worrying about stuff you can't control, that's waste. That is wasted energy. Second, I began to incorporate that last verse. Today, tomorrow. I ask Him the identical thing in the first one, and I add a word. Father, help me not to worry about things I can't do anything about today. It can be liberating. I know that next week and the following week, I know what i got to do. Don't worry about them today. And then third, I ask Him to help me not to worry about things that aren't going to happen today. That world of things I can't control. They're going to happen to me at some point. I am going to get sick. I am going to die. It's probably not today. So let's not worry about it today. If I can incorporate those three things into my life, it begins to leave time for something else. Leaves things and time for Christ. God calls us to a time of prayer. So let's everyone stand. You're invited.
up front with our elders and their spouses or on your own for us. Our prayer is the opposite of fear. It is courage. Ask God to give us courage to deal with our worries, to deal with our fears, if not this way, in some way. But that we will confront them and that we will manage them and we'll not let the fears and worries of life cause us to disappear. And second, if you're willing, incorporate it into your prior life, at least this morning. Father, help me not to worry about control that aren't going to happen. I can't do anything about. Father, help me not to worry about things I, that, aren't gonna, that I can't do anything about today. And finally, help me not to worry about things that aren't going to happen today. And let us also pray that we will never let anything, whether it's worry, fear, or some of the other things we talked about, ever, 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 Cause us to quit and leave the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If we can be of assistance to you, if you want to join us in our journey, anything we can do, please come as we sing.